Let us pray together. Father, we do now ask for your blessing, the blessing of your spirit, to rest upon the reading and the preaching of your word, that your word may go forth with power to transform our lives, to transform the world. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. As many of you know, I worked at a church in Austin, Texas uh, years ago. And I was there about 15 years ago, and one of our ruling elders was uh, Marvin Olasky. Uh, you may know the name Marvin Olasky. He is the editor of uh, World Magazine. Uh, at the time, uh, Marvin was an advisor to George W. Bush, and he had helped to develop what became known as compassionate conservatism. In fact, he coined that terminology. And because he had written a couple of books that were shaping the conservative movement, uh, for example, how to help the poor uh, and some pro-life issues and that kind of thing. He was asked to interview with one of the mainstream media news shows. Now, the mainstream media, of course, is not known for going easy on political conservatives. And uh, Marvin knew this would not be an easy interview. They were going to interview him one week, and then they would show segments of the interview on TV the next week. It was interesting talking to Marvin after he had done the interview. He said the one thing that struck him was they would ask him the same question again and again. Uh, maybe sometimes worded just slightly differently. They, they'd ask him the same question, usually about something very controversial, something about caring for the poor, the role of government, or his pro-life convictions, or his views on family and gender and race, that kind of thing. And he realized what they were doing. They were asking him the same question again and again, worded slightly differently, hoping that he would misspeak, hoping he would get impatient and frustrated and would stumble over his words and would say something uh, that would be uh, disgraceful, something that would, that would look bad for the causes that he was representing. And so Marvin, as he was giving this interview, had to discipline himself. He had to be patient. He could not get angry or frustrated. Uh, he knew that if he messed up and misspoke even at one point, that's the piece of the interview that would make it to national television. Now, in a way, you could say what they were trying to do in that interview was trap him. Uh, you had these liberals in the media who were trying to trap a conservative. They wanted him to slip up when answering a question so they could create trouble for him. Now, I don't doubt that there are many cases where the roles have been reversed and, and the conservative who's been trying to trap the liberal in his words in some way. But that's really what you have going on here with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians have been sent by the Sanhedrin, the governing council in Israel, to try to catch Jesus in his words. They're going to interview Jesus. They're going to pose controversial questions to Jesus, and they hope that Jesus slips up. They hope he messes up, that in some way he says something incriminating. Now, there's a few things here to notice before we even get into the passage itself. One thing to notice is how Jesus unites people. Have you ever noticed this, how Jesus unites people? He either unites people in a community around himself, or he unites them as they come together in opposition against him. And it's really the second of those that you see happening here. You've got Pharisees and Herodians coming on behalf of the Sanhedrin. These were different factions within Israel, and usually they functioned as enemies of each other. 
But here they are brought together. They are in league together because of their shared opposition to Jesus. It's the old, any enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Because they're united in opposition to Jesus, they come together and they collaborate to try to trap Jesus, to bring Jesus down. It's also interesting to note that at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, in chapters 2 and 3, uh, Jesus has in rapid succession five controversies with the Jewish leadership. Uh, now we come to the end of Mark's Gospel, and in chapters 11 and 12, he again has five controversies with the Jewish leaders. They happen in rapid succession. You see the Jewish leaders coming against him in waves. So the beginning of Mark's Gospel and the end match. Of course, the outcome of all of those controversies is going to be the cross. He's going to be crucified at the end of these controversial uh, engagements. We've also seen how throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is on the way of the Lord. That's how Mark begins his gospel. Jesus is marching along the way of the Lord, beginning with his baptism. That's how Mark's gospel begins. And from that launching point of his baptism, he's been moving along the way of the Lord. Now he's coming to the end of that way. That way is going to end at the cross. Again, that's where these controversies are leading. Further, when Jesus begins to engage with the Pharisees, he knows that they are testing him. This is a test they're putting to him. And that word for testing there is actually the same word used back in Mark chapter 1 when Satan tested Jesus or tempted Jesus in the wilderness. What are these attacks by the Jewish leadership? They are satanic attacks, satanic challenges to the authority of Jesus. When they come to Jesus, they start off with a bit of flattery. See, they are baiting their trap. Uh, their real intention, again, is to catch Jesus in his own words. They don't want to learn from him. They're not really interested in how he's going to answer the question uh, for its own sake. But they want to catch him. They want to trap him. Now, as with all flattery, there is truth in what they say. I don't think they mean it sincerely, but there's certainly truth here. They say to Jesus, we know that you tell the truth. We know that you're true, that you are a man of integrity. And we know you don't care what anyone says. You don't care what anyone thinks of you. You don't give a rip who it is. You're going to speak truth. They say you teach the way of God. So interesting they put it that way because throughout the gospel, again, Jesus is on the way. The way of the Lord, the way to the cross. That's the way of God. They know Jesus is not swayed by the fear of man. And in a way, they're really buttering him up. They want him to answer this question. And so if we tell you how smart you are, then, you know, of course, you've got to answer our question. If we uh, remind you how you don't fear man, and so you're willing to speak the truth boldly and courageously, then you're going to answer even this very controversial question we put to you. And so they pose their question to him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? In fact, they give a follow-up question. They kind of do what Nightline or 2020 did with Marvin Alasky. They ask the same question again to show they want a straight yes or no answer. Shall we pay or not pay? We're going to make it real simple for you, Jesus. Either yes or no. Now, it's important for us to understand why this is a trap question. If Jesus says no, do not pay the tax to Caesar, then he would be... Uh, appearing to be a, a subversive revolutionary, perhaps ready to lead some kind of tax revolt against Rome, some kind of armed resistance against Rome. 
And all the Jewish leadership would have to do then is let Rome know and then step aside as the power of Rome closes in on Jesus to crush him. The Romans, after all, didn't have very much patience for rebels within their empire, certainly not tax rebels. But if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, then he looks like a traitor to his own people. He looks like a sympathizer with the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people would then turn against him for being a compromiser with the pagans, for telling the Israelites that they needed to pay their taxes. Basically, that's like saying you need to fund the enemy occupying forces. You need to fund this army that is lording itself over you. If he answers yes, that's what it looks like. They've demanded a yes or no answer so that Jesus cannot squirm out of it. He's evaded all their traps to this point. Here they want to pin him down. They want to nail him to the wall on something. If he says no, he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. If he says yes, he's going to be in trouble with the people. And so it seems that Jesus is caught on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, and they are ready to impale him on the horns of that dilemma. It's interesting. Most politicians confronted with a hard question. You know, if you've watched any of the presidential debates, you've, you've seen this. Most politicians confronted with a hard question uh, simply refuse to answer it. They default to their talking points and they just sidestep the question altogether. Jesus is going to answer their question, but not in a way they could have expected. Again, I think a little more background here might be helpful. Why do they bring up the issue of taxes with Jesus? The tax in question here is uh, not just any tax. It is the imperial head tax. And it had quite a history. Uh, Judea had become a Roman province, province with a Roman governor, about 25 years before this. Uh, and that's when this tax was instituted. So this was still a relatively new thing. When this tax was instituted around 6 AD, uh, on top of all the other taxes that they already had to pay to Rome, uh, this tax was considered to be so insulting and just sort of over the top uh, that the Jewish people uh, grumbled against it and some even rebelled against it. There was a man named Judas the Galilean who gathered to himself a, a multitude of very zealous and, and patriotic Jews. And he gathered them around himself to go and fight for Jewish independence. You can actually read about this a little bit in Acts chapter 5, where the rabbi uh, Gamaliel uh, refers to this story of Judas the Galilean. Jude, Judas the Galilean uh, was supposed to be a great Jewish patriot. And he was doing their equivalent of throwing tea into the harbor and, and, and leading this revolt against what he and many others saw to be an unjust and even idolatrous form of taxation on the people of God. The people of God should not be subjected to this kind of taxation, uh, Judas the Galilean believed. But when Judas led his armed revolt, his armed resistance movement, the Romans utterly smashed it. They crushed the rebellion and indeed tightened their grip on the whole region. Judas the Galilean had led a revolt against Rome that failed. No doubt, as this story takes place, some were hoping that Jesus the Galilean would lead another revolt that would succeed. After all, for three years, Jesus has been traveling around Judea, traveling around Israel, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And surely if God's kingdom is at hand, and if Jesus has done all these signs, these miracles to back up that claim, surely the kingdom of God is at hand. That means a clash with Caesar's kingdom is coming. And so many believe they could see the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. Jewish patriotic zeal was at an all-time high. And that's really what this question is getting at. They're basically asking Jesus, Jesus, are you going to lead Israel in an armed revolution against Rome? Or, Jesus, are you going to be a coward and settle for the status quo? Those are your two options. You're either a revolutionary, like Judas the Galilean, or you're just another coward who settles for the status quo. But note, again, they're not asking this question because they're really interested in Jesus' taxation policy or even how they should relate to Caesar. They pose this question for one reason. They're envious, they're jealous, they're full of hatred towards Jesus. They want to take Jesus down. And so they spring this political trap on Jesus. They put him in what looks like a no-win situation. You know, it's so interesting looking at this story in context. Jesus has just told the parable of the wicked vine dressers, a story that indicates that the Jewish leadership is refusing to pay tribute to God. And now they come and ask Jesus a question about paying tribute to Caesar. They're not giving to God what is God's. Now they want to know from Jesus, should we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And again, they've asked this question hoping to show either Jesus is an enemy of Rome or he is an enemy of Israel. But the response Jesus gives is going to expose them as enemies of God. Well, verse 14 tells us Jesus knows that his questioners are hypocrites. He knows they're just trying to ambush him. Uh, he knows what they're up to. Uh, they're asking him a question they can't answer. They don't have an answer to this kind of question. Not a good answer. And so Jesus knows that they're hypocritical in asking this question. Jesus responds, as he so often does, with a question of his own. He asks for a coin. He asks to see a denarius. Now, it's interesting to note here, too. They have a coin on them. Jesus does not. You know, Jesus, his pockets are empty. There's no change, you know, jingling around in his pockets. They happen to have a denarius right on hand with them. Now, we know quite a bit uh, about these coins from history and archaeology. Uh, a denarius at the time was about one day's wages for a peasant. Uh, on one side of the coin, you can actually, you can do a Google image search and actually look at one of these on uh, on the web if you would like to. On one side of the coin, it had a picture of the emperor. And it declared him to be the king and the son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side, there was another image and there was the inscription Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. These, of course, were titles for Caesar. So think about this situation here. They hand over to Jesus a coin with the words on it, king, son of God, and high priest. Okay. Those are the words, the inscription on the coin. One commentator says that these coins were essentially portable idols uh, used to spread imperial propaganda. You know, used as a way of, uh, of promoting um, divine reverence for the emperor and the empire and spreading his message. 
And perhaps that's the case. I don't know if they were really uh, portable idols or not. Uh, We do need to understand that the Roman Empire was not an altogether bad thing. And in fact, the Jews should have known this, and they were supposed to be in submission to Rome. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how they are to relate to their Roman overlords, Roman soldiers, for example. Jeremiah and Daniel, centuries before, had explained to the Israelites how they were to relate to uh, the, the Gentile empires that God put over them. In his providence, God had set up the Roman Empire just like the Gentile empires before it. And he had set this Gentile empire up to be a protector for Israel, to house Israel, as it were. And in many ways, Rome had done a pretty good job of housing and protecting Israel. In fact, it's interesting, if you turn over to the book of Acts, you see Rome, uh, up until the mid-60s of the first century, doing a pretty good job protecting the church, housing and protecting the church, providing roads for missionaries to travel on protecting the Christians from a lot of Jewish persecution. So in a lot of ways, Rome was was a good beast, a tame beast, uh, an empire that was playing its role well. But that's not to say that Rome wasn't idolatrous in her own right. Uh, She certainly was. And so these coins that the Jews had to use to pay the tax... Uh, really, in a way, were bitter reminders to the people of Israel that, that Rome had power over her, that she was under the dominion of a pagan lord, a pagan king. And, of course, it's also often pointed out that these coins would have been an offense to Jewish sensibilities uh, with their images uh, and the inscription that went with them. You, you can think of it this way. You know, atheists don't like the fact that in America our coins say, in God we trust. Whether that's a meaningful slogan or not, atheists don't like it. Okay, well, understandably, ancient Jews did not like the fact that Roman kings proclaimed Caesar to be king, son of God, and high priest. In effect, the coin said, in Caesar we trust. But think about those three titles on the coin, on the denarius. King, son of God, and high priest. Isn't it a bit ironic they handed Jesus a coin with those three titles? Those are titles that will eventually be ascribed to Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is going to use those titles to unpack who Jesus is. Now certainly right at the moment as this story is taking place, Jesus doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a high priest. He doesn't look like the divine son of God. It doesn't look that way right at this moment. It does look that way for Caesar. Caesar does look like a king. After all, if you can get your image on all the coins in the empire, you're pretty powerful. Caesar looks like a king. It's his image on the coins. He's a king, so all the coins are his. They all carry his picture and his message. And you might even ask here, how can Jesus be a king when he doesn't even have a single coin? He's got to ask for the king for the coin. He can't just pull one out of his pocket. He's got to ask for one. How can you be a king without a coin? Well, only if you're going to be an altogether different kind of king with an altogether different kind of kingdom. A king with a different kind of image and a different kind of inscription. And as we'll see, that's what Jesus is. Now, what's happening here? What happens when they give Jesus the coin? What does he do with it? 
I said Jesus had been put in a no-win situation by their question. Well, leave it to Jesus. He's put in a no-win situation, and he wins anyway. Uh, He always wins in every one of these controversies. In fact, in a mere ten words, Jesus not only silences and amazes his opposition, in a mere ten words, I think it's 16 in the English, Jesus gives more political wisdom than is contained in all the constitutions and political philosophy books in all the history of the world. These words, these, this is really one sentence, encapsulates a whole political philosophy that is the wisest political philosophy the world has ever been given. Verse 17, Jesus answers. And again, here he's outwitting and outwisdoming the opposition, the Jewish leadership. He may not have a coin. He may not have a kingly coin, but he certainly has kingly wisdom. He holds up the coin to them. And he says to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they say Caesar's. And then Jesus gives his answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now it's not often that a discussion of taxes creates a sense of wonder and awe. Okay, if you've watched the presidential debates, have any of the answers about taxation caused you to be in awe? <laughs> have you marveled over any of the answers about taxes? Uh, Probably not. It's not often that this kind of thing happens. But here it does. They are amazed at his answer. Indeed, his answer is a kind of parable. Indeed, the whole scene uh, is a kind of parable. And they leave him, and they leave him in awe. They've been silenced. They're speechless. They're overcome with the incredible wisdom of Jesus. What's the meaning of this answer he gives, that decisive line? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. It's as if Jesus said, look, Caesar's image is on the coin. It's his money, and so let him have it. In other words, pay your taxes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. If it has his image on it, then give it back to him. He can have it. But then that raises the question, where is God's image Well, this is the Jewish leadership Jesus is speaking to. They know the Torah. They know Genesis 1. They know where God's image is found. They know man is stamped with the image of God. And so what are we to render to God? We give to God what has His image. We give God ourselves. Pay Caesar back in his coin, but pay God back in his. God's image and inscription are found on man. God's image and inscription are found on you. And so render to him yourself. Caesar identifies what is his with his image. Likewise, God identifies what is his with his image. Caesar made the coin. He created the coin. Give it to him. But God made you. God created you. Give yourself back to him. That is the answer of Jesus. Now both parts of the answer Jesus gives are crucial. The render to Caesar part and the render to God part. You really can't separate them, but I want to talk about each one on its own for a few minutes. Especially the first one. What does it mean to render to Caesar what is Caesar's? Well again, at the most basic level in context, what it means is pay your taxes. 
Uh, I think we actually get a more complete answer to this question in Romans 13. It's as if Paul wrote Romans 13 to further unpack what Jesus meant when he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In Romans 13, Paul uh, speaks of the civil magistrate, the civil government. Uh, Paul gives commands to Christians who are living in the capital of the empire, living in the city of Rome. And he tells them to render to all their due. That's kind of how he summarizes his instruction. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. See, Paul explains there, rendering to Caesar includes respecting and honoring his office. And Paul explains this is because Caesar is ordained by God. Civil authority is appointed by God. Civil authority represents God. In fact, Paul even says the civil magistrate is God's servant. Or actually, he says, God's deacon. See, civil government is not a necessary evil. It's a creational ordinance. It's a providential institution. It is ordained by God. Civil authority is granted by God. Now, in a day like theirs in the first century, or I think you could say increasingly in a day like ours, when it seems that our Caesar is not exactly friendly to Christians, and in many ways is openly opposed to Christians, we must remember, some things are Caesar's. We are to give honor to Caesar. Caesar has a legitimate claim on us. Caesar really has authority, granted by God and backed up by God. And so in a way, disobedience to Caesar in normal circumstances is disobedience to God. But in a day like ours, we also need to guard ourselves against the opposite error. Today, as in Jesus' day, you have some who turn Caesar into an idol. Who makes Caesar divine in some way. Who end up rendering to Caesar not just what is Caesar's, but what is God's. And indeed, I think in our own nation, in an election year, the confusion of God and Caesar is especially evident. Let me give you some examples of this. One way we mix God's things and Caesar's things is by allowing patriotism to devolve into nationalism. When we confuse patriotism with nationalism, we confuse or mix the things of Caesar with the things of God. Patriotism is perfectly appropriate. What is patriotism? It's love of country. And if it is a, if it is a rightly ordered love, in normal circumstances, it is healthy and good. We should be grateful to be Americans. Uh, you know, if you're... If you're an American, you have much to be thankful for, much to be grateful for. Uh, just like it is natural to love your family, it is good and natural to love your homeland. You know, if you uh, go to a baseball game and uh, tear up just a bit and swell with pride when the national anthem is played, that's okay. That's just fine. Uh, if you are all excited about fireworks, you love the fireworks at 4th of July, you love a good 4th of July celebration, that's okay too. 
we should love our country. And quite frankly, as Americans, there is a lot to love. I think we have more reason to love our country than uh, many do in other countries. It's easier in a lot of ways to love our country uh, than it would be some other countries. Now, true patriots uh, will not only honor their nation and their nation's rulers and their nation's history and their nation's institutions, they will also be ready to stand against their nation when she's wrong. The true patriot knows that sometimes he has to render resistance to Caesar in order to be a good citizen. Sometimes rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's means standing up to Caesar, rendering to Caesar opposition. Sometimes patriots have to be the loyal opposition, standing against Caesar for the sake of Caesar, opposing Caesar for the good of Caesar. But in general and in ordinary circumstances, patriotism Loving country, honoring nation, honoring its institutions and its culture and its rulers. Patriotism expresses a good and natural love for the country in which God has placed you. And this is important because I think in our day we see a lot of attacks on patriotism. Uh, which I think is, is, a, is a profound uh, lack of gratitude uh, for our homeland. You know, to reject patriotism is to reject your embodiment as a particular human in a particular time and place. Dismissing or negating the ties that bind us to a time and a place and a people and a culture and a history and a story is dangerous. Patriotism means I'm from here, not there. I'm from this nation, not that one. My home is here, not over there. Patriotism is a way of saying... Thank you for all you've been given. It's a way of saying thank you to God for all he has providentially granted you. Patriotism means you have roots. You're grateful for the place where God has put you. Your place in the story. Where God has positioned you in time and space. You know, many who reject patriotism today do so in favor of what they call multiculturalism. Where the idea is you're, you're supposed to appreciate other cultures just as much as your own. But the reality is that's just not possible. We should appreciate other cultures, but we can never appreciate other cultures just as much as we do our own or in the same way that we do our own. Just like it's not possible for you to love somebody else's family as much as you love your own. No matter what, I will always love my family differently and more than I can love your family. That's just the way it is because they're my family and that's your family. That's just how it is. That doesn't mean I don't love your family. In fact, by loving my family, I can understand what it means for you to love your family. You see that? The problem with multiculturalism is that by calling on us to appreciate every other culture just the same way we appreciate our own, you end up appreciating nobody's culture. You don't appreciate your own, and so you don't appreciate anybody else's either. Just like if you don't love your family, you're not going to love somebody else's family either. Or if you try to love somebody else's family in just the same way as you love your own, you won't end up loving any family. And that's what multiculturalism does. It destroys appreciation for one's nation. It keeps us from rendering appropriate honor to Caesar. Now... The problem is that patriotism can become nationalism. Patriotism, which is something good in itself, can become nationalism. And nationalism is 
dangerous. Nationalism happens when love for country exceeds its proper bounds. We start to love our country too much. We're in the wrong way. It's no longer a rightly ordered, rightly proportioned love. Nationalism says things like this. My nation right or wrong. Or even worse, my nation is never wrong. And don't think that hasn't happened many times in history. Nationalism is when your nation becomes your God, at least functionally. And so let me put it this way. If we think of ourselves as Americans first and Christians second, we are nationalists. We have made an idol out of America. If we put loyalty to country ahead of loyalty to Christ in this church, we are nationalists. If we put our trust in our nation for security, or if we seek to find identity and meaning and purpose, in our nationhood and in our citizenship, we have become idolaters. And I have to tell you, sometimes nationalism has crept into American politics, even in subtle ways, even um, otherwise great Americans, who I think we ought to appreciate in many ways, have been nationalists in certain respects. So, for example, there are some who have claimed that uh, America has some kind of special relationship with God. And that America is God's instrument for accomplishing his redemptive purposes in the world. And so the, the American nation take, takes on religious dimensions. Sometimes our rhetoric, our political rhetoric has done this. Ascribing to the American nation titles and names that really belong exclusively to Christ and his church. And so, for example, we've had several presidents, including some who I think would be considered pretty good presidents, who have referred to America as a city on a hill or a shining city on a hill is the language that's sometimes used. But, of course, that's language Jesus used to refer to his disciples in Matthew 5. It's language used for the church, not for America. When Jesus used that language, he was talking about the people who confess his name and follow him. And certainly that can never be identified with America. Some have spoken of America as a chosen nation. But of course, it's the church that is the chosen nation. The church is the new Israel. The church is God's chosen people. Abraham Lincoln called America the world's last best hope. Language that I think would be more appropriately applied to Christ himself and perhaps to the church he promises to use to spread his gospel. America is not the world's last best hope, but sometimes the American nation has taken on this messianic consciousness. We're a savior nation, a redeemer nation. No matter how blessed America is, and we have been incredibly blessed with wealth and with power and with freedom, but no matter how blessed America is, no matter how influenced America has been by Christian principles and, and, and by biblical truth, America can never take the place of the church. No matter how unique or exceptional we might think America is amongst all the nations of the world, it's still just another nation. And it cannot replace the church as the focal point of God's purposes in the world and in history. Uh, but nationalism is not the only way we can idolize Caesar. Uh, closely related to nationalism is what you could call statism, uh, especially in its secularized form, as we've seen in 
recent history. In statism, we render things that are God's to Caesar by putting our trust and our security in the nation, finding our security in the nation, and, 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 and putting our trust in the power of the state. It's a way of doing what the Bible forbids, putting our trust in princes. The problem is that when we make an idol of the state in this way, just as with every other idol, it always ends up destroying us. So statism, which promises freedom and peace and security, actually always leads to tyranny. See, when God is driven from public life, which is what we've seen in our own nation's history in recent generations, when God is driven from public life, the state more and more fills that vacuum. You drive God out of public life, the state comes to play God more and more. That's why T.S. Eliot once said, if you will not have God as your God, you will have to pay your respects to a Hitler or a Stalin. Those who won't have God as their God will find that they are much more cruel, they're much crueler masters who will arise. You know, man is inescapably religious, and if he won't be religious about religious things, then he will be religious about political things. And I do think we see this happening all around us today. People who are looking to the state for salvation and for security. And you know, here's what's happening in our culture. This is why we have the culture where you even see this, I think, playing out in some of the presidential politics and, and debates that are going on right now. If you're one of those people who thinks that the state has to save us and you find your meaning and your purpose and your identity and your security in the state, and then you've got other people who talk about wanting to limit the state, well then if you're one of those people over here who's looking for salvation in the state, those people who are talking about limiting the state sound blasphemous to you. They sound heartless to you. Statism leads us to treat political candidates as messianic figures. And, and so there's a huge celebration of your person wins because this candidate's going to bring in salvation, a new age. And, and there's huge despair if your candidate doesn't because now all is lost. And I think sometimes Americans fall into either of those traps. The reality is that we're guarding ourselves against this kind of statist idolatry then we're going to recognize that our support of any politician, no matter how godly or faithful he sounds, our support of any politician is always going to be limited and conditional and even somewhat skeptical. We are not going to put our trust in our leaders to solve problems that really can't be solved politically. And quite honestly, most of the problems we face in our culture cannot be solved politically. There just isn't a federal government solution to most of the problems we face. Now, I think it'd be great, you know, sometime if, if a politician or a candidate were asked, all right, so what are you going to do about the latest crisis? If that politician just said nothing, <laughs> I am not going to do a single thing. It's not my job to fix it because there is no political solution to this problem. Wouldn't that be a wonderful and refreshing thing to say, but you're never going to hear it. I've talked about this before, but you may remember after the San Bernardino shootings in California, uh, many Americans, this was a, you know, a, a terrorist attack, uh, many Americans, especially Christians, said that they would be praying for 
the victims. And this went out on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, you know, praying for the victims of the family and praying for justice. And the New York Daily, uh, you might remember when I talked about this previously, uh, they, had a, they ran a headline in response to that in, in big, bold print that said, God's not fixing this. In other words, stop praying to God and do something. Do something that will fix it. Now, of course, we as Christians would say, if it's going to be fixed, God's going to have to fix it. There's no other way to deal with the violence and, and, and the terrorist threats that we face. God's got to do it. God's got to do it or it's not going to happen. They said God's not fixing it, but maybe we should run a counter headline that says the state's not fixing it either. Because the state certainly hasn't. Now see, that headline, God's not fixing it, you know that was really a call for you know, saying, you know, quit your praying, that doesn't do any good. But what that headline really was, was a call for government action. A call for the government to do something. Stop praying to God, that won't fix it. What will fix it is the state. We need more laws. We need better rules. But laws are not the answer for the evils that afflict us. Only God can change hearts and cultures the way American hearts and American culture need to be changed. But see, for those who don't trust God, you know, they're not going to pray to God. They're going to cry out to God that way. Calls for government action really are a form of prayer for them. Again, that's what that headline was. We're not praying to God. We're praying to the state to fix this. We're praying to the state to save us. If, if God's taken out of the picture, the state becomes your God all too easily. And for many people in our culture, the state functions as a deity. They look to the state to fix it. For those who are in this position with this outlook, press conferences are kind of a, a substitute for Bible studies. Kind of substitute Bible studies. The State of the Union addresses are their sermons. Elections are their sacraments. That's the religion of statism. That's how it works. Now according to Mark 12 and according to Romans 13 and other places in Scripture, the state does have a legitimate role to play. It is to be a ministry of justice. God ordained the state for our good. And it can do some good when it is obedient to God. But when the state tries to become God or play God, it is always destructive. In Mark 12, 17, Jesus gives us a view of civil government that says, look, civil government is both legitimate and limited. It's legitimate because it derives from God, but it is limited because it is not God. That's the view Jesus gives us. Caesar makes a good servant. He makes a bad God. So we must render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we must never render to Caesar what is God's. Now, turn to the other part real briefly here, to the other part of Jesus' answer. What does it mean to render to God what is God's? This, I think, actually is much, much simpler. Again, we ask the question, where is God's image found? It's on you. You are God's image. You bear God's image. You are God's image. So give to Caesar the coins that has his image, but give yourself, your whole self, your whole life, your body and your soul to God. You bear the imprint of his likeness. You bear his inscription. You owe him your whole self. 
Now, I think when we come to this, you know, rendering to God part of it, there, there are some misconceptions here too. One mistake is to think that when Jesus talks about the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's, he's talking about church and state. And so Caesar gets that which pertains to the state, and God gets that which pertains to the church. Or some have even taken this as a kind of secular, sacred dichotomy, where Caesar gets the secular things and God gets the sacred things. But that's not the point. That's not how this works. That's why you have to understand the whole image thing that's going on here. Give to Caesar the coin that has his image, but give to God yourself because you bear God's image. God claims everything. God claims your whole self, your whole person. And that means He calls you to serve Him faithfully in every aspect of your life. You render to God what is God's in every part of your life. Yes, that means church life. But it also means work life and family life and play life. It means every aspect of your life belongs to God. Your loyalty to Caesar is always limited and conditional. But your loyalty to God is absolute and unconditional. God reigns over you in all of life. And so even what is Caesar's is really a subset of what is, is God's. If you could draw a circle around everything in your life... You would say, this is God's. This is what I'm to render to God. And within that circle would be another smaller circle. This is what you're to render to Caesar's. But it's inside the God circle. Because the things that belong to Caesar also ultimately belong to God. In fact, Caesar himself bears God's image. And so Caesar must render himself to God. Caesar must serve God. Political life belongs to God as well. Our politicians belong to God. They bear God's image and should serve God in all they do. Again, the coins bear Caesar's image, but Caesar bears God's image. The coin has Caesar's likeness, but Caesar is in God's likeness. And so Caesar must render himself to God. Caesar's political office, his political authority, belong to God. Now, oftentimes it seems Caesar doesn't get this. Caesar doesn't know this. And so part of our calling as the church is to teach Caesar this truth. We are called to disciple Caesar and thus to shape the public life of our culture and our nation. Our mission as the church takes us into Caesar's palaces and halls of power to proclaim the truth, to disciple Caesar. So we don't render God's things to Caesar, but we do seek to render Caesar's things to God. In other words, citizenship is an aspect of discipleship. Statecraft is an aspect of discipleship. But then when we look at our own culture, we have to ask the question, what happens when our best efforts to disciple Caesar, our best efforts to disciple the public and political life of our nation don't seem to be very effective. When No matter how hard we pray or preach, it just seems like we're spinning our wheels. What happens when Caesar claims God's things as his own and there doesn't seem to be much we can do about it? See, if Caesar says that life in the womb can be exterminated, then Caesar is claiming something that belongs to God. 
If Caesar tries to redefine marriage and family, Caesar is claiming God's things as his own. Marriage is a God thing after all. God ordained marriage in the beginning. What do we do when Caesar is hostile to the church and to God? Well, I don't think we need to panic. Even if Caesar declares open season on Christians, the church can survive and thrive. In fact, the church has often done her best work when Caesar was at his most hostile. And indeed, my guess is that if our American Caesar goes to war with faithful Christians, we will actually see an explosion of church growth and Christian faithfulness, unlike anything we have seen in generations. But no, for that to happen, we have to be faithful in rendering to God what is His now. We must give God what is His. Well, what's the outcome of this story? What's the outcome of this story for the Jews? I said the whole thing is really a parable. It is. In this story, the Jews inadvertently render to God, that is to Jesus, what is Caesar's. They render Caesar's things to Jesus as they should. When they give him the coin, when they give to Jesus Caesar's coin, they are rendering to Jesus, the God-man, what is Caesar's. They should do that. Unwittingly, they do the right thing. But before long, you know what they're going to do? They're going to render Jesus, who is God's ultimate image, and who is God's inscription, the very Word of God incarnate. Before long, they're going to render Jesus, God's image, and God's inscription to Caesar. They're going to render Jesus to Caesar to be crucified. And when he's put on trial, the Jews are going to cry out, We have no king but Caesar, and Jesus is going to be nailed to Caesar's cross. What's the outcome for the Jews? What's the outcome of this story for us? What are we to do? Well, we're to pay our taxes. We're to give to Caesar what is his. We're to give him the honor that is due him. But more than that, we must give to God what is God's. And taxes are trivial compared to what we owe God. Caesar gets our limited and conditional loyalty, but God gets everything from us. Our unconditional loyalty. We give God Everything, even Caesar's realm, belongs to God. We give God our whole lives. Again, consider this story in context. Unlike the wicked vine dressers who failed to give the fruit of the vineyard to God, we give the fruit of our lives to God. We render the fruit of our lives to God. A couple stories later, there's going to be a big discussion, another controversy about the greatest commandment. And Jesus is going to teach the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What are we to render to God? Love. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to give to God all that we are and all that we have. That's our calling. That's what it means to give to God what is His. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the wisdom of Jesus. We thank You for how it equips us and readies us to serve, to serve You, to serve Your kingdom, uh, even our own nation and culture. Father, in many ways, we now feel like strangers in a strange land here in America. Uh, as It seems that Caesar is turning against us. We pray that You would help us to remember at all times that Jesus is Lord, which means Caesar is not. 
May we find peace and comfort and security in Him. May we seek to be faithfully present, serving you in every area of our lives, rendering to you what is yours. For you are our God and we bear your image. Father, you know we don't pray to Caesar, but we do pray for Caesar. Because we know whether or not our nation has ever been a Christian nation, we do know that our nation is very much in need of Christ. And we are called to give Christ to our nation, to our culture. May we do so, that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.